Well, let's get started. We're studying the Old Testament minor prophet of Habakkuk. We've just begun the book. Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah and Zephaniah, not as well known, but Jeremiah is very well known. He served in the court of uh, the king of Judah. Uh, this is right before the Babylonian uh, captivity, right before Babylon will destroy Judah, burn the temple, loot everything in Jerusalem, and take tens of thousands of Jews into captivity, as God had said he would do in judging Israel, uh, excuse me, judging Judah. So the prophecies that are a part of Habakkuk are organized around a series of questions and really, in effect, uh, of, of complaints that Habakkuk levels at God. And uh, we saw the first one, which we studied right before our, our holiday uh, time off, where he is, he, Habakkuk, is saying to God, why are you tolerating so much evil in your people's country of Judah? And he mentions a number of things that characterize the idolatry, the immorality, the violence, uh, and so on. And God responds to Habakkuk, just because you don't see me working does not mean I'm not working. I am raising up a power that will vanquish my people Judah and discipline them, and that is none other than Babylon. I remind you also that Babylon, at this time, we're, we're studying, it's, a, it's about it's 6th century B.C., about 590 uh, or, or so B.C., actually a little earlier than that, about 600 B.C., but anyway, uh, Babylon has just overtaken the Assyrian Empire and destroyed it. Uh, the king of Babylonia is now Nebuchadnezzar. His father, Nabopolassar, had destroyed the Assyrian Empire, captured Nineveh, destroyed it, and now his son, Nebuchadnezzar, is beginning his march toward the south, where ultimately he will lay siege to Jerusalem, take one group of Jews back. Daniel will be a part of that in 605 B.C. We'll come back again in 597 B.C. and take another group of Jews to Babylon. Ezekiel will be a part of that captivity. And then in 586, he will come back again. And all of this, there are reasons why he comes back, but I'm just giving you the overview. And this time, he sort of has had it with Judah, and he destroys Jerusalem, burns it, loots the temple, takes everything to Babylon, including somewhere close to 50,000 Jews. And that is what is called the Babylonian captivity. None of that has happened when Habakkuk is writing his prophecy, because God says to Habakkuk, I'm raising up Babylon. They will be my instrument of judgment, of discipline. So that summarizes chapter, the first part of chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Now, verse 12 of chapter 1, which is where I want to pick up now, this causes Habakkuk to respond. And in verse 12 is a really marvelous, marvelous verse. Look at what Habakkuk says. Are you not from everlasting? Another way of saying that, you are eternal. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Now let me stop there before we go through the rest of the verse. Note, note again what he's doing. Habakkuk is reviewing the attributes of his God. 
Are you not eternal? Remember our last name. Then note the titles. O Lord, that in your, I'm sure all of your translations, that's in capitals. That's Yahweh, O Yahweh, my Elohim, my Holy One. Now, what I want you to observe there is the pronoun my. So what Habakkuk is really saying, you are the eternal God, you're the great I am, you're the majestic Elohim, you're the perfect Holy One, but you're my Holy One, my God. So we see this extraordinary statement of that intimate personal relationship that Habakkuk the prophet has with God. And that is, and by the way, that is absolutely unique when you compare the scriptures with any other religion at that time, whether you're talking about Babylonian worshiping Marduk or the Philistines worshiping Dagon or the um, Edomites worshiping uh, Molech. I mean, all of these, there's no personal intimate relationship with that God. They're afraid of their gods. They, they, they loathe their gods. Not Habakkuk, not the Jews, not God's covenant people. And so this intimate personal relation, he, refers, he affirms that. Then after that rhetorical question, are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh, my Elohim, my Holy One, we shall not die. What does he mean by that? We shall not die. We shall not perish as a people. That is an affirmation of that unconditional, unilateral covenant relationship the Jewish people have with God. It takes you back to the Abrahamic covenant, and if you've been around this class for a while, that's not unfamiliar to you. You've heard me talk about the Abrahamic covenant many times. So Habakkuk is reviewing who God is. He's reviewing as well that personal, intimate relationship with that living God, and then he's reaffirming, maybe a better way to say that, restating that intimate, personal covenant relationship. We're not going to perish as a people. You are going to discipline us. You have every right to do that. But we are in an unconditional covenant relationship with you. Again, that's the Abrahamic covenant. O Lord, and he, now I'm continuing in verse 12, O Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment. Now, the them takes you back to the previous section we studied right before Christmas, the Babylonians. Oh, you And you, O oh Rock, have established them for reproof. So Habakkuk is recognizing something that's quite central to the theology of the book of Habakkuk. God is the sovereign, providential God, and he does not do things that are unjust. He does not do things in a frivolous, impulsive way. He has ordained them. He has established them. And notice again, just a, a marvelous summary of God's sovereignty. God's the sovereign Lord of history. He is doing this. He raised up the Babylonians. He raised them up to be the instrument of his discipline. And so this, this language that Habakkuk is using at the end of verse 12 that we've now spent a bit of time on is the language of, of sovereignty, the language of strength, but ultimately 
the language of that redemptive work of God in history. They are his people. He will never give them up, as he says in Jeremiah, as he says in the prophet Hosea. He will never give them up. But he has every right to judge them, to reprove them. That's the language of a loving Heavenly Father disciplining and reproving his children, in this case, Israel. And one other thing to note is that metaphor, that metaphorical name at the end of verse 12, O Rock. And that is, that is rather consistent throughout the Old Testament material picked up in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. Rock, rock evidences permanence, uh, evidences immense strength and power, and that's what God is. As the sovereign Lord of the universe and the sovereign Lord of, of history, he is a God of strength, a God of power, a God of stability, just like a rock. And so this, this tremendous affirmation in verse 12, it's heavily theological, a great deal of doctrine. God is eternal. He is, he is a great I am, the self-sufficient, self-existent one of the universe. He's holy, and he's a personal, intimate God, and he's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. His people will not perish, but as the sovereign Lord, he has every right, indeed, responsibility to discipline and reprove his children, in this case, Israel. So Habakkuk is not, in his questioning of God, which we're going to see he's going to continue to do in just a minute, he is not giving up his understanding who God is. He just doesn't understand quite if this is true of his God, why is he tolerating so much injustice? Why is he doing this? And why, God, are you using a rebellious, pagan, idolatrous people to judge us? And so that's, that's kind of the, the, the essence of setting up what is going to be this second charge, this second series of questions that Habakkuk is going to ask of God. All right, now, any questions about verse 12? I spent a fair amount of time on that, but it's such an important verse. All right, now, in verses 12... Jim, Jim, Jim I had a question regarding this. It just seems like that um, this, is a, this is a point of faith where we can't see how God is working. We know he's working, and he doesn't change. And he loves his people. But there are difficult times when you have to cling to faith, the substance of things not seen, <clears throat> as the scriptures say. It seems like that's, that's what he's doing here with that covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, claiming it. And, um, you know, because there, there are times when we run into difficulties and we can't see him, we can't understand his working. Well, I, that's exactly right. I mean, and what, this is what Habakkuk, I believe, is doing. It is perplexing for him what God has chosen to do, but he's falling back on what he knows about his God, which is what verse 12 
is such a magnificent summary of what he knows about his God. And I think for all of us, regardless of the situations we get into in life, it is important for us to review. That's why it's so critical to be spending time in God's Word, to be with other believers who can reaffirm and encourage, as well as in times of prayer, to just remind us who is our God? What is He like? What are His attributes? Because rarely, at least I can, I'm not that smart, rarely can we figure out what God is doing. Rarely can we figure out exactly, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? That's what, that's what Habakkuk is saying. I know who you are. I can define your attributes, but I sure don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, God. Now, if you have never been in that kind of a situation, you haven't been alive. <laughs> because, I mean, almost every single day of my life, I, I can respond that way. I know who my God is. I've studied him for 37 years in depth, but I still can't figure out what he's doing a lot of times. But because I know who he is and I've seen his faithfulness from my past, I fall back, okay, I still believe you know what you're doing, and therefore I will trust you. And I guess that's where we, that's one of the great lessons of studying these, even as we're doing now. That's why I chose to do this because I think it's such a marvelous little book to study these Old Testament prophets because they're struggling with the same things you and I are struggling with. We know who you are, God, but we sure can't figure out what you're doing. Yeah, why, why, why are you allowing this? And so on. Well, anyway, now look at verse 13 through verse, uh, well, really it'd be about verse 17. What he does, he, Habakkuk, he raises three points. He highlights three questions. He focuses on three things he cannot understand. Even though he knows who his God is, see verse 12. So the first point in verse 13, he raises a question. He raises a point. He raises a, a, a problem. He faces a challenge. You, I'm in verse 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Okay, that's kind of a poetic way of saying, God, you're holy. You're so pure, your eyes can't see evil. You're so pure, you cannot even look at wrong. Okay? God is holy. He is perfectly, absolutely holy. R.C. Sproul, before he died, he wrote a book called The Holiness of God. But he says that the center of God's being is absolute pure holiness. And I would not disagree with that. And that's what he's doing here. So as he did with verse 12 in assuming, excuse me, reviewing those attributes of God, who he is, this leads him, because you are holy, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? All right. Now, who are the traitors? Who are the wicked? It's Babylon. So if you are so pure and you are so holy that you can't even look on evil, why are you idly looking at traitors, remaining silent when the Babylonians swallow us up 
for we are more righteous than they are, which is a pretty audacious thing to claim. But in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, that's true. In terms of the Abrahamic covenant, an unconditional unilateral covenant that God has with the Jewish people, they are more important to him in terms of the covenant than Babylon. So Habakkuk is saying, just a minute, God. I understand what you're doing, but you're going to idly look and be silent when these evil, treacherous, traitorous, wicked people outside the covenant swallow us up? For after all, we're in a covenant relationship with you. Why are you tolerating this evil? If you're holy, why are you tolerating such an evil thing that is about to happen? Now, again, guys, if you haven't ever asked that kind of a question, God, you're holy, you're righteous, why would you tolerate Hafas al-Assad, who butchered one million of his own people in that horrible civil war in Syria that's now starting to come to an end. Seven years. Two and a half million people became refugees as a result of that butcher. Or you could go to almost any incident that is occurring right now in China, where China is locking up by the hundreds of thousands these Uyghurs and putting them in concentration camps and putting them in re-education programs, or, I mean, you could just go on and on and on. You could say, okay, God, you're holy, you're righteous, why are you tolerating, why are you silent with that kind of evil? I want to tell you something. I've studied, I've debated, I've talked with atheists throughout my life, and the major reason people embrace atheism is this question. You tell me your God is good. You tell me your God is righteous. Then how can he tolerate this? Why does he let this go on? And if you go back, I just finished reading a, a book about 1939 about the appeasers that let Hitler get away with what he get, got away with. And that was one of the major questions that was occurring among evangelical Christians in Great Britain. If God is so good, why is he letting Hitler do what he did? Do you have an answer to that question? Can you answer that question? Because what Habakkuk is posing to God is one of the fundamental questions that cause people to become atheists. I cannot believe in a God who allows an Adolf Hitler to do what he did. I cannot believe in a God who allows the butcher Joseph Stalin to kill 20 million of his own people. Or you can take it to the 1940s that will allow Mao Zedong to kill 30 to 40 million of his people. This is what Habakkuk is asking. You are so perfect and holy and righteous, and yet you are silent when there's evil. Now, the question is, is God silent? But that's, we're not there yet. Let's go to the second point he raises. It's in verse 14 and verse 15. You make mankind like fish of the sea. Now, that's a simile, like fish of the sea. Like, another simile, crawling things that have no ruler, like a worm. 
I'm not aware of worms having a hierarchy, uh, an integrated structure with rulers. What he's saying is, I look at mankind, I look at humanity, I look at the nations, and what I see are nations with unrighteous, corrupt leaders who do not check all of the horrible sins that humanity creates. Why do you allow that? Corrupt, unrighteous leaders who are more interested in preserving their own power than really serving their people. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. That is exactly, by the way, what Babylon is going to do to Judah. They're going to take the people to Babylon with hooks in their noses and take them in lines, that 550-mile journey to Babylon. He gathers them up in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad exalting in Babylonian power. There are no good rulers. Judah is bereft of good rulers that has not dealt with the unrighteous, un sinful, rebellious things in the kingdom, has not checked idolatry. God, why do you allow this? Second question. Why do you tolerate so much evil? Why are you silent in the face of so much evil? Question one, two. Why do you allow such corrupt leaders who should be shepherding their people? Instead, they're in collusion with the evil rulers, and Babylon will take us away with hooks in our noses. Number three is verse 16 and 17. God, why do you tolerate a nation that exalts military power over just government? Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly, mercilessly killing nations forever? Will unrestrained evil at the hands of Babylon continue? God, you are allowing a nation that exalts military power, which they did, exalts military power, almost to the point where they worship it. Notice the language. Sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet. The net and dragnet are metaphors for the army that just drags the nations into captivity, pulls the nations into captivity when they themselves live in luck. God, why are you tolerating that? How could you tolerate a nation that worships military power at the, ex at the expense of justice and righteousness. How long are you going to allow this to continue, to empty their nets, mercifully killing nations forever? Because Nebuchadnezzar went all the way down into Egypt and conquered Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar was the supreme ruler of the world at that time. No one rivaled his power. He was brutal. He was ruthless. And Habakkuk is saying, why would you tolerate a nation like that? So when you look at these three questions, these three charges, these three challenges that Habakkuk levels at God, it's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? 
But you know, each one of those three questions is extremely relevant for us today. I tried to give a few examples, but throughout so much of history, you've had totalitarian governments that worship their military, that almost will give anything they want to keep their loyalty. And so this is what, this is what Habakkuk is doing as he lays these three challenges out before God. But before we get to verse 1 of chapter 2, which really ends, it's a false chapter break there, because really verse 1 of chapter 2 just continues. But before we get to that, I want to see if you have any questions about these three significant charges that he, that is uh, Habakkuk, has leveled at God. All right. Again, it all gets it all gets back to our faith, doesn't it? I mean, um, you see China, and they are so proud of their military as they march by and create, you know, with their military might, and they exalt that very highly. And um, you know, they're they're doing what they're doing. I mean, people are knowledgeable about that, and and. Um, I don't know where we go except faith. Well, yeah. I mean, what I wanted you to do, and I I hope I succeeded in doing that. (laughs) I don't know if I did. But what I wanted you to do is see that these three points that Habakkuk is making are extremely relevant for us in 2021. And especially that first point. Why are you silent in the midst of so much evil? As I, I mean, I've told you that. Uh, earlier, and I'll repeat again, if there's been any question that I've had to deal with consistently throughout my life in ministry and in teaching, it was that. That question is still one of the foremost questions that you and I had better have an answer for. If you are a good God, why do you tolerate so much evil? Why are you silent? Well, that's begging the question, is he really silent? But that that point. And then that, that second second key question that he really poses to to God is, you know, God, why why do you tolerate such incompetent, selfish, self-centered, and egomaniacal rulers who, instead of being good shepherds, are corrupt rulers who are only arrested in one thing, preserving their own personal power? And then this third point, God, why, why do you tolerate nations that, that exalt military power at the expense of justice, hard insensitivity, brutal brutality with people. God, why do you tolerate that? And those kinds of questions are relevant questions. I want to come back to some of that in just a little bit. But look, uh, how, Jim, how do, how do you answer those? When Because you've dealt with it for years. And... Well, um, Let's, let's see how God answers it in the next part of chapter 2. Because <laughs> right. I, wrote, I, I, wrote I wrote a paper, a, a long paper on all this stuff uh, a number of years ago. The first part of it was in one of the issues in perspective, and then I added more to it. So I'll get to that in a minute. I want to make, it's not so much important what I say, it's what God says. And that's what we're going to see in verse 2. But I want you to look at verse 1. Because as I said, this really ends... This brings to a conclusion 
what Habakkuk is saying to God. It's almost like, therefore, I will take my stand at my watch post, station myself on the tower, look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So what, what do you have? You have the image of Habakkuk standing, let's say it's probably Jerusalem, because he served in the court of the kings of Judah. My watch post on my tower. Remember, all the cities in the ancient world were, had walls around them. And so he says, I'm going to be like the watchman, who was the watchman at night, standing at the tower, looking out. Is there anything threatening on the horizon? Is there anything, are there any enemies on the horizon that we should be concerned about, that I need to alert the king to? So I'm going to watch. I'm going to wait to see how God answers. Listen, one of, one of the axioms of the Bible is this axiom. Wise people take their questions about God to God, not to someone else. Wise people take their questions about God to God. That's what Habakkuk has done. He can't figure it out. So he takes his questions to God, and he's waiting for God to respond. So this is not this is not a skeptic or an agnostic or an, an atheist. This is a man of faith who has legitimate questions, and he waits for God to answer. Wise people take their questions about God to God. Let him answer. He will answer through his word. He will answer through the counsel of his people. He is not interested in keeping us ignorant, but in his answers, there is an implicit question. Do you trust me? Do you believe that I'm good? Do you believe that I'm righteous? As he affirmed, he, Habakkuk, had affirmed in verse 12, I know my God. I know his attributes. I know what he's like. One of the things that is important for me and for you is it is all right for us to ask questions of God. It's all right to have some doubts about what God is doing. But don't let them, don't let them fester in your gut to create bitterness. Get those questions out and ask them. That's what the Psalms are, are all about. That's why I like to take a little bit of time in our class to occasionally go to a few psalms and just study, which we're going to do in a few weeks. That's important to do that, because most of the psalmists, that's what they're doing. They're hurling questions at God, but then you wait. Will God answer? So you have this marvelous, marvelous statement of faith in verse 1 of chapter 2. I'll wait. I know he'll answer. I'll wait for God's response. Now, God responds, his answer is in, begins in, in, in verse 2, and it's going to go on for, for a while, actually, and I don't know if we'll get all that done, I kind of doubt we will, but it's going to go on for a bit. But in this, there are a couple of very key points that I want to try to establish. So let's dig into it now. Verse 2, 
is a little bit like a, almost like a prologue. I'm not sure that's the right word, almost like an introduction. And Yahweh, notice that's the name there. Yahweh, the Lord answered me. Write the vision. You could translate that, write the oracle. You could paraphrase it, write the prophetic revelation. I'm about to answer your questions. I'm about to deal with your dilemmas, Habakkuk. So be ready to write it down. So he may run who reads it. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about that, but I don't think it's that difficult because as you probably know, in the ancient world, they didn't have cell phones, didn't have telephones, they didn't have any means of communication. They would send runners from one city to another, one village to another, that would take the message, take the oracle, take the letter, take the dictate. So that's all God is saying. Be prepared to write this down and be ready to spread it out, to take it to everybody. They're going to have runners that are going to take the message. So this is prophetic revelation. This is God responding. Be ready to write it down. Verse 3. Now, let me take my time with this. For still, the vision, the prophetic revelation, the oracle, awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Well, goodness, what is that all about? Verse, verse 3 is a, is a quite wonderful statement, caution, instruction, admonishment from God. This prophetic revelation awaits its appointed time. It will happen. I am the sovereign God. What I decree will happen. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. This isn't going to be, well, it might happen under certain circumstances. It might, no, 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 no. It will occur. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, let me, let me summarize a couple of things here that give the historical framework to, to this and what God is really saying here. Habakkuk, I am going to use Babylon to discipline my people. And the final aspect of that is going to occur in 586 B.C. It's an appointed time. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, under my sovereignty, will discipline my people, will take them into exile, as I promised they would be taken into exile if they practiced idolatry in Deuteronomy 28. He promised that. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I am also going to judge Babylon. The instrument of my discipline, I will hold them accountable. And that will occur in 539 BC, when Cyrus, the king of Persia, will conquer and destroy the Babylonian kingdom. That, by the way, is recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5. So they will be my instruments of discipline, but I will hold them accountable. Wait for it. Be patient. 
Again, one of the important points, and I love this from the book of Habakkuk, just because you don't see me acting in space-time, historical time in which you're living, does not mean I'm not acting. And that is because God is not a God bound to space and time. God is a God who is eternal, who is above space and time and acts to accomplish his purposes. So, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. Is it not upright within him? Well, who's the his? The his, that pronoun. Who's that referring to? The Babylonian king. This arrogant one that you've been lamenting about in your questions that you just leveled at me, Habakkuk. Yes, his soul is puffed up. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with arrogant hubris and pride. He is, he is fulfilled. He's filled with un, unfulfilled greed, gross social injustice. I know all that. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> now, the key to verse 4 is that word of contrast right in the middle of the verse. But there is a contrast between the unrighteous king of Babylon, the Babylonians, all unrighteous people, and the people who are my people. My people live by faith. They're not the arrogant, puffed up, self-sufficient, self-aggrandizing, selfish, self-centered people. My people live by faith. My people walk by faith. My people wait patiently for me to act. My people are dependent on me. My people evidence a dependent trust, like you see in that wonderful psalm, Psalm 91, one of the most fabulous psalms in the whole Psalter of 150 psalms. Psalm 91 is a, is a wonderful meditation on trust. Now, I think you know this. If you don't know it, you're now going to know it. That little phrase, the just shall live by faith, is repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul. It's in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. That forms the thesis of the book of Romans. Those who are righteous live by faith. Those who are justified, who have been declared righteous, live by faith. It's in Galatians 3, verse 11. It's exactly the same point. My people who have been declared righteous live by faith. And then Hebrews, in that majestic discourse on the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 10, it's repeated again. So what God is doing here is he's contrasting his covenant people with the pagan barbarians who will discipline his people. His people trust him. His people walk by faith and trust in him. And so that contrast, and, and, and in a very real sense, that is exactly what you saw, saw in verse 1 of chapter 2, 
when Habakkuk reaffirmed, okay, I don't understand this. I've heard all these questions that you got, but I'm going to sit on the watchtower. I'm going to, I'm going to be the watchman. I'll wait. Now God is responding. Habakkuk is one of those who walks by faith. And that, in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this. We do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. There are things we don't understand. There are things we can't figure out. But if you know your God, you know what he's like, you've seen his faithfulness in the past, then you walk by faith. And that's what Habakkuk, excuse me, that's what God is saying to Habakkuk as he contrasts the Babylonians, who are about to be his instrument of discipline of Judah, are not like his people. Habakkuk, you may have to go into captivity. Tens of thousands of your people are going to be going into captivity. But I told you this is going to happen. I warned you this is going to happen. Now you wait patiently for God to act and to faithfully fulfill his purposes. And that's where you and I are in 2021. I have no idea what 2021 is going to be like, and no, neither do you. But we do know this. We know our God. We know what our God is like. And we also know that God has every right to hold a nation like the United States accountable for the things that it has tolerated in his doing. And so we trust him as he works out his purposes and plans even though we may not understand what they are. So this is, that's why Habakkuk is such, a, is such a relevant book for us in 2021, because there are hosts of questions. And of course, maybe the one prominent right now is, why in the world are you tolerating and allowing all this COVID-19 stuff to happen, God? Why? Well, is God silent? No. But I can't see everything he's doing. But I do know a number of things that have resulted as a result of, have been a consequence of this. God is using it, and we have to trust him with it. All right, now, in verse 5, as he continues, God continues, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own, uh, c collects as his own all peoples. Right? Verse 5 summarizes Babylon. Verse 5 summarizes the arrogance and puffed up nature of the Babylonian kings. As with Babylon, wine impoverishes, confuses, and destroys. An arrogant man who has never at rest. Babylon is like getting drunk with wine. It impoverishes, it confuses, it destroys. And the greed of Babylon is as wide as Sheol. Now, Sheol can mean hell, but usually it just means the grave. And so his greed is as wide as Sheol. It's never filled up. His greed knows no end, and that was true of Babylon. Like death, he never has enough. No matter how many cities, no matter how many nations, no matter how much loot they plunder, no matter how many people they take into captivity, they're never satisfied. He, the king of Babylon, gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Insatiable, 
He's never satisfied. And that's true. Nebuchadnezzar conquered virtually everything in the known world of that time. And he still wanted more. And that's why the book of Daniel is such a marvelous book, because God confronts Nebuchadnezzar through the great prophet Daniel. But that's for another study. That's not what we're studying here. So God is just affirming what, what Habakkuk has been saying in these three tribes. Yes, that's what Babylon is like. But I will judge Babylon. And that's what verse 6 through verse 17 is all about. And I don't know if we'll get through all of this today. I doubt that we will. But what, what God does now, now listen very carefully to this. What God does now is he declares, I will judge Babylon. And here are the reasons why I'm going to judge Babylon. So verse 6 through verse 17, really, in a way, through the end of the chapter, but verse 18, 19, 20, there's something different going on there. We'll get to that next week. So what is, what is, what's, what's occurring here? In verse 6 through uh, 17, God is like a judge. And what God is doing is he's presenting all of the evidence of why he is issuing the declaration of guilty and why he is going to level the judgment on Babylon. As I told you earlier, that will be when King Cyrus of the Persian Empire destroys Babylon in 539 BC. So what are the charges against Babylon? Starting with verse 6. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? Whoa. All right, now let's take that statement apart. Shall not all these, who are the all these? They're the nations. All the nations that Babylon has conquered in its greed, in its arrogance, in its insatiable desire for more and more and more, shall not all these nations take up their taunt against him? Shall, they, shall these nations not all level all of their mocking and scoffing against Babylon with ridicule and with riddles, with 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 sayings about Babylon. So what is he saying? God is saying all of the nations are going to be part of this prosecution of Babylon because they have been the victims. They will now be the witnesses that I, the Lord God of the universe, will use to show I'm just, I'm good, and I will judge evil. Wait for it. Be patient. But I will judge evil. Now listen, that is really important for me. I told you I just finished reading a book. It's called 1939, but it was on the appeasement of so many of the nations with Hitler. And if you remember, Hitler promised a thousand-year Reich. It lasted 12 years. And God brought that man down. You had to wait. 
But you saw what happened to Adolf Hitler. You saw what happened to the Third Reich. You saw what happened with that dastardly vision of an Aryan perfect race that would rule the world. It hardly did that. God brought it down with a fury, with a vengeance. He's going to do the same with Babylon. And the nations that were the victims of Babylon will be the witnesses as they scoff and ridicule and issue taunt after taunt after taunt against Babylon. God is the God of justice. And God's wheels of justice move because you and I are tied to space and time. We don't think they move fast enough, but they move. And this is the amazing thing that you always have to remember. And this is what I always say when people say to me, you say your God is good. Why does he allow such evil? I bring them to the cross. Because the cross is the answer that God gives a human race to evil. Because he gave his son. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas. He gave his son to be a sacrifice for the human race. And the greatest example, the most dastardly act of evil in human history was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, because he was perfect. He was innocent. And Jesus became a victim of evil to eradicate evil from this planet. That's how much God cares. And God patiently, methodically, carefully fulfills his redemptive plan. The greatest example, and strike that, the, the greatest point of God's dealing with evil is not silence, it's the cross. That's how God deals with evil. Look to the cross. So here, he, God, is saying to, Bab uh, to Habakkuk, this is what I'm going to do with Babylon. The nations are going to be the witnesses. Now, what I want you to observe is that in verse 6, you see the word woe. In verse 9, you see the word woe. In verse 12, you see the word woe. In verse 15, you see the word woe. Now, that's true in the New Testament. It's true in the Old Testament. Whenever you see the word woe, it is always introducing an oracle of judgment, Jesus does that to the Pharisees near the end of the book of Matthew. Woe to you, Pharisees. He has seven key charges he levels against them. These are charges leveled against Babylon. And the nations which they conquered, that Babylon conquered, are the witnesses. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? Loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And now this is really, if you want to summarize verse, end of verse six through seven and eight, it would be summarized in this way. As you plunder the nations, the nations will plunder you. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Babylon plundered the nations that it conquered. From 605 B.C. 
until you get to about 545 BC. Babylon plundered everything, including Egypt. And then a little ruler out of a country called Media linked up with another small country called Persia to create the Medo-Persian coalition. And the leader of that was an obscure man nobody had ever heard of. His name was Cyrus. And he moved into the Mesopotamian Valley and plundered the entire Babylonian Empire. And Daniel chapter 5 describes the, the conquest by Cyrus of the city of Babylon. Belshazzar is the king at that time. Now I'm saying all that because God is saying, listen, Habakkuk, I will hold Babylon accountable. And the nations they plunder will be the witnesses. As Babylon plundered them, Babylon will be plundered. Verse 9, woe to him. Here's another oracle of judgment. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. That's a, a metaphor, a figure of speech. The city, the city of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar built was like a secure eagle's nest perched high on a mountain, seemingly absolutely never be conquered. That's what they did with all their wealth, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The city that you built, and Nebuchadnezzar built the greatest city of the ancient world. The city of Babylon was an absolute architectural masterpiece. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of statues and, 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 and beautiful, the hanging gardens of Babylon he built for his wife who was from the country of Media. The, the walls around Babylon were so wide, you could, you could drive several chariots side by side around the whole wall. A magnificent, marvelous temple to Marduk was right in the center. Daniel lived there. But in 539 B.C., the timbers, the stones of that city cried out as it crumbled and fell apart under Cyrus's armies. God held Babylon accountable, and it was destroyed. The final woe, and then we'll have to stop. Not the final one, but the one we'll finish with today. Woe to him, verse 12, who builds a town with blood, founds a city of iniquity. Babylon, and this is why they took them into exile, Babylon built their wealth, built their cities, built their civilization on slave labor. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Babylon built its majestic civilization on destruction. As it used slave labor from other civilizations, it too will be destroyed. And who will be the one that will destroy Babylon? Well, it's going to be Cyrus. 
But from God's perspective, it's the Lord of hosts. That's Yahweh Sabaoth, that title for God in verse 13. Yahweh Sabaoth. It's a title of God, the commander of all the hosts of heavenly armies. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters are in, contra in contrast to the arrogance and bombast of the Babylonian civilization, which was, which was manifested by its elegant city of Babylon built on slave labor. It's not going to last, but the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. Now, we're still waiting for that to be completed because that's not going to occur completely and finally until Jesus comes back. Babylon is now just a place. Well, I wouldn't advise you to go there. It's in modern-day Iraq. But Babylon is a place where archaeological historians dig. It doesn't exist. It's not there. But the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. The invasion of planet Earth, the invasion of the kingdom of darkness, the invasion of Satan's kingdom is on track. The Son of God has come. The incarnation has occurred. His death, burial, and resurrection ascension has occurred. The church has been founded. It's spreading throughout the earth. The kingdom of God is coming to earth, and his glory will fill the earth. Babylon is an historical pile of dust, not God's kingdom. Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of the Lord of hosts of God's armies of heaven, will fill the earth with his glory. Such a marvelous, marvelous statement. Just because you don't see me acting does not mean I'm not acting. My plan, this is God speaking, my plan is on track, and I will fulfill what I promised. So, whew, I better stop here. It's after a quarter after. I hope you're with me on this. This is a fantastic passage of Scripture. I don't know if you got a sense I'm excited about this, but I am excited about this. I love this little book. It's a treasure in the Old Testament. And so we're not even done with the, the, this part, but I want to do a couple of more things with this next week, and then we'll get into chapter 3, which is, oh my goodness, it's one of the most fantastic prayers of the Bible. It's Habakkuk. How does Habakkuk now respond to all this? And that's what we'll dig into. There's an awful lot we want to talk about in chapter 3. So are you with me? All right. Yes. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray, and I'll, I'll let you go. Carolyn, was that the, the, the wife's name, uh, Fred? Yes. Carolyn? Yes. Our Father, we are grateful for the book of Habakkuk. It was written oh, around 600 B.C. or so on, but it's as relevant as if it was written yesterday. He poses the kinds of questions that we legitimately can ask, but we take our questions to God and let him answer them for us, and that's what Habakkuk has done. Lord, we thank you that we have answers to these perplexing questions, but ultimately, as we saw in verse 4, the just, those who are righteous, those who have come to a saving understanding and knowledge of you, we walk by faith, we trust you, we have confidence in you, and that's what God is doing with Habakkuk, reminding him of his sovereignty, reminding him of his goodness, reminding him of his providence. And even though you may not see God at work, he is still very much at work, accomplishing his purposes for his glory. There's coming a day when the glory of the Lord will fill the earth, as he stated there in verse 14. We look forward and long for that. 
But until that occurs, we trust you, Lord. Help us to be men of strong faith, men of God who represent you well in this dark world. Commit these guys to you. Give them a good rest of this day, this week, and really for all of 2021. We trust you with it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Thank you, everyone. Have be a good safe. Day. You bet. Thanks, Jim.